Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. Meeting with the great Stephen Spurry in Paris convinced Rosamond Barton that she wanted to work in wine. After spells as a buyer and a newspaper columnist in South Africa, she decided that PR was her future. And what a success she's made of it, working alongside Rupert Ponsonby at R&R Teamwork. Our fascinating chat covered everything from pork scratchings to disastrous press trips, snail racing to badly behaved journalists. Hi, Rosa. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Tim. How are you? I'm really well. And where are you? Somewhere glamorous? Oh, yes. Very glamorous in our office basement. (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't get more glamorous than that, does it? I couldn't believe, you know, your upbringing is very glamorous. You know, you were born in Vienna, uh, moved around quite a bit when you were growing up. I mean, your parents sound really interesting. Can you tell us a bit more about them? Yeah, my father worked for the British Council. So he was kind of either a cultural councillor or uh, in the MC or... Sometimes he was he acted as press in places like Belgrade. If he'd been a diplomat there, he wouldn't have been allowed to talk to the local people. So he kind of ducked and dived. Um, many people said he was a spy because he spoke so many languages, but who knows? Um, and my mother was a nurse, and um, they were they lived all over the place and just had enormous fun, really. And your mother was half Spanish, wasn't she? Yes, but um, Spanish. But her parents had, well, her father had lived in Venezuela and then been booted out of Venezuela and gone to Cuba mm. and then ended up in Devon, oddly, <laughs> as one does with polo ponies. I mean, they must have been wine drinkers, weren't they? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. My mother only drank Rioja and Bordeaux. Uh, my father drank um, anything German, anything Austrian, and he even tried to get people to drink Lasky Riesling, which didn't work very well. And then they would both drink champagne whenever they could. So. I mean, your parents moved around, I said, as I said, quite a bit with the, with the British Council. And I think they were living in Paris when you left boarding school, which you said you hated, and you decided to do a course yeah, at the Sorbonne in French civilization. And I think it was there that you met Stephen Spurrier, wasn't it? And, and Stephen was a bit of an inspiration. Tell us a bit more about him. Yeah, Stephen was always at our flat because he and mummy were always playing tricks on whoever were. Uh, guests at the time, whether it was the um, Royal Shakespeare Company or whether it was French cultural people. Um, French particular, um, Stephen always said, you are absolutely not allowed to serve them French wine. Put it in a, a carafe. They'll tell you it's absolutely wonderful and tell you t- until you tell them that it's actually not <laughs> French. And so she was always saying, ah, Monsieur Rioja. And they go, no. So they had great fun. And Stephen was running, what, the Académie du Vin in Paris at the time, wasn't he? Uh, Cave de Madeleine. Yeah, uh, Cave de Madeleine, sorry. Yeah. And he um, he wore sort of tight um, leather trousers and he was just so different from everybody else that my parents sort of uh, had round. It was quite funny. And I was talking to his wife 
the other day and she said at the time he had a big moustache. I didn't remember that, but <laughs> she did. <laughs> she was not amused by that. <laughs> and, and did he make you want to go into the wine business in a funny kind of way? It seemed very glamorous again, that word glamour again, yeah? Oh, it's just that he had fun. I mean, you know, as you know, he did <laughs> He did his uh, wonderful tasting, which had the French in a bit of a tears afterwards. The Judgment um, of Paris, yeah, 1976. The Judgment of Paris, yeah. indeed. Yeah. So um, he... He just liked he liked taking people on different journeys in one, and I I thought that was great. Um, and then and I ended up working with him quite a lot with um, Eduardo Chadwick, who did his Chilean journey journey with Top Wine. So yeah, I, I loved Stephen from the beginning, and it made me think I want to speak French, I want to drink wine, I want to have fun. And that's pretty and, much what we've done. Yeah. <laughs> Got there in the end. (laughs) And you decided not to go to university. You were going to go study French and art history, I think, at Edinburgh. Instead, you went to secretarial college, and then you got a job doing special projects for the Times. Finally, you got a job (laughs) in the wine business at H. Sitchin and Sons in wine. What took you so long to get there? Well, when there's a gap in my CV, it's always travel. (laughs) So (laughs) there's quite a lot of travelling going on. And and the Times was great because I basically worked for a lovely man called John Gregg and I was using my French a lot, um, but I always wanted to get into wine. So it wasn't until I got back from traveling around the world for a year, went to Australia, America, Southeast Asia, came back, decided, come on, now I've got to get into wine, just got to. Went for an interview at Sichuan, didn't go very well. Then I went to Newmarket Racecourse with my parents. And there's Jack Hill, I don't know if you remember him, he was a Bordeaux director at Sichuan, H. Sichuan and Son. He came up to me and he said, I didn't offer you the job, but then I didn't know that you liked racing. And I said, well, it's one of the things I do, yeah. Not not very often, but yeah. And he gave me the job. Well, he changed his mind. He changed his mind. (laughs) He changed his mind. It was very funny. Um, So, you know, luck has played a lot of – it's been good for me. I mean, you said, you know, you've got this sort of travel bug. I mean, you just talked about the trips you went on. What, what took you to South Africa? Because that was the next big step in your life, wasn't it? Yeah, I'd, 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 I'd been in London for quite a few years, no, three, two, two and a bit years, and I just thought, come on, there's, there's more to the world than this. So I wanted to go somewhere where they spoke English and there was wine. Hmm. And a girlfriend said, let's go to South Africa. So I went, but she didn't come, but I went on my own. Um, and because I had studied the diploma, in fact, I only had half of it, but I was the only person in South Africa with half a WACT diploma. <laughs> They'd all you know, done their South African stuff. And so um, bizarrely, uh, it was quite easy for me to get a job. But you had lots of jobs, didn't you? I mean, you seem to do bits of, I mean, you, you wrote for a newspaper, you were buying wine, you were, you were doing a bit of PR. And what the, else? the newspaper was because I was working for a supermarket and, they did one of those things saying, will you write the column for us? Mm. So, But they, my, as my name wasn't Jewish enough, they had to change it to Rose. So I was R- Rose from a rebel. <laughs> was it a Jewish I, newspaper? Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, I had to write my three <laughs> best lines. But, yeah, I I was yeah involved in, in the buying and marketing department and then decided that buying didn't really suit me because, well, in South Africa, I was fine buying the, the – foreign wines but going down to Stellenbosch talking to all these Afrikaans farmers and trying to buy sweet wine for the Afrikaans market wasn't anything that I really had much experience in so I wasn't necessarily the best at that um, 
and I was quite frightened of all the dogs they had. They all had names like Darfy and and uh, Hitler and things. Yeah, and they were big. Oh, there were dogs with extraordinary Hitler, names. The dog called Hitler. I'd be so quite scared to go anywhere. And Hitler, come here! You know, and I was like, oh my god. <laughs> One, one. I mean, you um, had a few Winnie famous Mandela. customers, didn't you? She, she was quite funny, but she didn't oh. really buy wine. But she'd come with masses of coins and always with very young men. Um, so it was quite funny. But, uh, yeah. I mean, Nelson was Not obviously much wine, so she was coming did, to buy wine. bought wine? Just seeing her entourage was quite funny. And they were, bit, they were quite musical. So what, she'd, she'd come in with all these people? All these think? young people, and they're quite sort of, they'd be at the till and they'd be super musical. And it was just, I think they were just sort of saying, look at us. <laughs> <laughs> so you recognised that, presumably? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 No, I did. I mean, I so you did five years in South Africa, then you went back to the UK, and, and it was then PR, right? And PR... Well, in South Africa. So yeah. in South Africa, I decided that PR was the bit that I enjoyed. Mm. And I went to a small PR company there, lady called Adele Lucas and I said can you train me for three months so the first thing I had to do was organize to have uh, so for free um was to put pink ribbon around a, a big building and then get a celebrity in a helicopter to come and cut it so it's great. <laughs> god, that's then, not easy what, to, to cut it from the helicopter <laughs> oh my god I mean, things that could have gone wrong <laughs> health and safety would have gone nuts over here um anyway it was quite good baptism of art but um yeah so when I'd been at Rebel, they were looking at the Majestic, how Majestic worked, and they heard that Majestic was doing really, really well. So I did a bit of research, came over to the UK, went around lots of Majestics, wrote a report for them saying, it's a brilliant idea, but I don't think it'll work in South Africa, because at the time, most South Africans wouldn't want to go into a drafty, dirty warehouse. Mm. So... When I was in England because my father died, I decided, well, I know so much about Majestic, let me just contact them and say, here I am. <laughs> and uh, bizarrely, Esme Johnson said, okay, sure, come and work for us. <laughs> so they didn't know you'd been spying on them, as it were, with the idea of setting <laughs> no, up on Majestic. I, <laughs> no, I, I told them I'd done, I'd done a report. No, they didn't know I was for that. Well, I did fess up when I went for the interview. <laughs> so, yeah, that was a quite... Fun, I was there for a couple of years until I was sacked. Half yeah, of us were sacked. And then I came and had lunch with you, I remember. You, you, you were a bit, oh, poor you, come and have lunch. Oh, that was very nice of you. <laughs> it was, wasn't it? <laughs> and then you ended up, you know, running your own business. So how did you meet Rupert Ponsonby, with whom you set up R&R Teamwork, which is where you've been ever since? Okay, so a couple of ways, really. First of all, when I, was, when I left Majestic, I went to a very large agency to learn how not to do PR. Um, and I was working on Hagen Dars. And so I was working with sort of sexy photography of ice cream going all over people's parts, which is quite fun. <laughs> and Rupert was with Alan Crompton Bat, and they were being very proper and doing it in very expensive restaurants. So they were doing the entree PR, and I was doing the sexy PR. Um, and then Rupert started working on Wines of South Africa. And I had all these lovely winemakers ringing me up and saying, Ach, Rosmad, they used to call me Rosmad. They couldn't say Rosamond. Uh, Ach, Rosmad, there's this chap, he's called Rupert Pansombai. Is he okay? <laughs> and they, all of them didn't understand a bloody word he said. <laughs> and so I sort of did translation between 
<laughs> this is what he's saying. This is what the... This the, is what po- posh the English and for Afrikaners. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. It was, I mean, they ended up absolutely loving each other, but, but, but yeah. I, I was the sort of the intermediary. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, and you've you've got this wonderful relationship, the two of you. I mean, you know, it's like it's like your brothers and sisters in a way. But just tell us a little bit about about PR, public relations. Just for you know, for people listening in, what is it? I mean, I like your description. I think you you have to be somewhere between a cosseting aunt and a spiky nephew. That's if you're working for customers. Just you know, what's what's the job? Well. <laughs> You've got to make sure everyone's happy, really, and so you're you're holding hands, which is being the auntie, and then um, the spiky nephew is really sort of asking questions. Well, because somebody who's got a brand often has blinkers, mm. so if PR, you have to say, well, uh, could you do this, or why haven't you done this? And there's often a very good reason why they haven't done something, or they just oh, hadn't thought about that. So. Um, for me, PR is really, you've, you've got to love people. If you don't love people, forget it. I've had quite a few people <laughs> work for me for a while and say, look, I, I don't think I could be nice to another person. Yeah, I cannot bear this. Yeah. <laughs> please, please let me go. Um, because you've got to make sure that your client's happy. You've got to make sure that the journalist's happy. And you've got to make sure that, you know, you're happy with being in the middle. So, um, you know, there have been times when we found that it hasn't worked for us and we, we've had to say to the client, yeah, goodbye, mm-hmm. um, and vice versa, because we're not, we're a bit different from a lot of people. So <laughs> we either work either the perfect PR for someone or we're not. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the thing. When, when somebody says to me, oh, I really need a PR, and they often, people often come to me and say they want a PR because they've got. I don't know, a curtain business or something. And I'm really happy to look at people's proposals just to see whether I, I believe what they've written. Hmm. So, um, yeah. I mean, you said so, you are different, and I, I agree with that. <laughs> I mean, what is it What is it that makes you guys different? I mean, is it just what you call the F word? That's the fun word. I mean, you're also pretty creative, I think, aren't you? I think also that Rupert is A and I'm Z. So Rupert will come to a meeting and he will say this idea and then I'll look absolutely horrified and I'll come up with that idea. And so the client has a lot of space in the middle. <laughs> they can come up with whatever they want. So you haven't discussed it in advance, right? <laughs> usually not, usually not. And, and he, I mean, we, we are so different. Um, and I think people love that. Um, and then obviously uh, I employ amazing people who've got completely different skills. Um, so we've got Hannah from advertising, um, Natasha or Thumper, as you call her, originally from fashion, and Eleanor's got to be the most organised person I've ever met in my life. Um, so they bash us around a bit. And Ailey, who you saw earlier, is a bit of American fresh air. So, you know, it's, uh, I love mixing people and realising that what I'm good at is delegating. And Rupert, Rupert is the ideas person. But oh, I, I thought it was you. I thought it was a bit of both of you. Well, it is a bit, yeah. I have a few ideas in the swimming pool. But, I mean, um, how do you come up with these crazy ideas? I know you do it in the swimming pool, but um, <laughs> I mean, I mean how, how do you sell them to clients, I wonder? Um, <laughs> doesn't always work. Um, I think if, if a client is spending money on PR, they've come to you for um, advice. So if you said... 
we're very honest, we'll say, look, no one's ever done this before. So it's, we'd love to try it. Will you try it with us? Um, and the snail racing. Did you ever come to our snail racing with Fitu? I think I did go to one snail race. Tell us about the yeah. snail race because that, I mean, that, that ended up going what, viral, but the, probably, what, the equivalent of viral at the time anyway. Yeah, we, we ended up on Sky Sports News um, because we did <laughs> the second time we did it, we did it just before the general election. And so we got Sky Sports. There was nothing for Sky Sports to do, so they came along to the snail race. And then, of course, Rupert will talk about anything on any medium. So there he was talking about snails, but he had a little bit of snail stuff between his teeth. <laughs> did he go live him. with a snail in his teeth? Well, a little bit. I'm not sure everyone knew it was a snail, but I did. So I was in stitches. <laughs> um, and and, and it, well, the snails are quite fun because apparently an African land snail that lives in the north of England goes a little bit faster than the one that lives in the south. So the races were fixed, well. were they? <laughs> <laughs> no, but we got the winner. So we, we got we got the winner of the election. So that was um, quite fun. But but the Fitu growers were just brilliant. Any ideas we came up with? I think you also came to our soiree cochon in Fitu, mm-hmm. um, which means normally night out, doesn't it? Um, and so we had, did piggy quizzes and we did treasure hunts with them. I think they were the first client that just said, sure, anything that you think will make people come along. Well, and we're talking about a French cooperative here. We're not talking, you know, so they're pretty traditional, yeah? Yeah. Um, we also did something with Katie with them. Um, they had a brand called French Kiss. Do you remember that? Yeah. And all the winemakers went around supermarkets kissing people. I mean, it was just brilliant. To be fair, that was Katie's idea, but we helped her with it. But oh my goodness. And, and you've got to tell me about the massage parlour, the steam room. Well, Okay, that's, that's two different things. So the steam room, you wimped. You only came to the lunch. So we <laughs> um, I seem to remember you saying, why would I want to go to a steam room? Uh, but I'll come and taste the, the Madeira. Well, basically, the Madeira story is exciting, isn't it, the way that the, the wines were cooked on, on boats. So we thought we'd cook the journalists. But um, actually, I think this was my idea. And I had real difficulty going to all these hotels and mass and not massage but hotels and <laughs> and uh, <laughs> sort of nice places to say could we take over and taste wine in your steam room and they go why and so i said this is educational um but uh, that was brilliant because john garsart then explained the astufa system to everybody in one room when they were all wearing those white towels we've still got the photos it's brilliant <laughs> um, but the massage parlor was different that was for hot oh. oils that was hop oil. Rupert has always loved working with hops, and so did I, but I never quite loved the hop oil smell as much as he did. Um, and so, yeah, we did um, barley and hop oil massages at Brands Hotel and got a ridiculous amount of coverage for it because <laughs> people wanted you know, something British. You know, every, all massages always, I don't know, Swedish or Thai or something. Brands must be British. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a lot of fun. I mean, you, your clients, as we heard, aren't just wine clients. Um, yeah, you work with beer, you work with pork scratchings. Don't you? I d- just want, is there any type of food and drink you, you would refuse to represent? Yeah, that's the sound I, of the I pork did, scratchings, by the way, yeah. folks. <laughs> <laughs> I did uh, say no to toffee. I've never understood toffee. Mm. Um, I have to say. Um, that's Ethically, one anything you'd say, oh, don't do that. Crisps or something like that. I wouldn't do. I wouldn't do. I wouldn't do foie gras. Yeah. I do. I do a crisp tasting. 
Uh, I would certainly do um, a beer and crisp tasting or something, and, and we have done a bit of that sort of thing. I mean, the, we did a seven-course pork scratching dinner for the beer generic, which was how, our, how what, we... What, seven did. different pork scratchings? Yeah, I ended up with pork scratchings with chocolate and ice cream. Yeah. <laughs> that does which sound is, like fun. Yeah, and at the end of the dinner, um, everyone was just so stoked, and Rupert um, said, don't know why all the pork scratchings here are not British. So the next thing, he's started a company with Tom Parker Bowles mm. um, and Matt, the chef Matthew Fort, mm. um, and they came up with uh, Mr. Trotter's pork, great British pork scratchings. I think Which now it's very successful, right? Yeah, but now they, I think they're having problems always getting British because I'm mm. not sure that there's enough around. So, mm. um, but yeah, at the time it was. Yeah, nobody put the word British into it, which was quite mm. interesting. So it's quite fun to to actually st- come up with a, a new product. Mm. I, I want to go back to what you said about about liking people, and I, I think obviously a big bit of the job for me, I'm not a PR, but the good ones, and I think you're obviously one of them, is that you actually have to like journalists as a, as a group of people. It's just almost an underrated bit of PR for me. I mean, I, I personally dislike PRs who just sort of see me as a source of column inches or, or a way of promoting their brand. I mean, did, did, would you agree with that? You've actually got to like the, the world of journalism in a way. You, you've got to be interested absolutely and and the wonderful thing is that you're all different you know it's there's no point me saying to you would you like to do a pork scratching tasting because you know, i know you wouldn't <laughs> if you did it would be just for fun it would be nothing that you could ever write about yeah. and so if we ever ask somebody to do something that we know is completely out of their comfort zone we let them know that we know it's out of their comfort zone so it's it's having the knowledge of yeah who likes what and actually asking questions do you like this and a lot of journalists are now saying transfer i can only write about wines that are under 10 pounds i can only write about wines that are over 25 pounds um so we're, 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 i think before what we had to sort of find it out and now people are actually saying you know, this is what floats my boat or mm. um i'm about to have a baby so i'm not going to taste wines for four or six months or whatever so we have to know people really well um, to have a good relationship with them. So it, yeah, journalists need to talk to us and vice versa. I mean, you know, how do you handle rude and, and over-demanding journalists? I mean, you know, heaven forfend that we could ever be rude or over-demanding, but what's the worst thing anybody's ever, ever asked you to do? Well, luckily, the worst thing I think anyone has ever asked me to do wasn't direct to my face because I would could have been really quite rude. But I had this phone call and <laughs> about nine o'clock at night on a Sunday from a lovely Tasmanian winemaker in Hungary. And he said, that journalist, Andre, that journalist you sent me is asking me if I can get him a prostitute. <laughs> and, I, and he said, is it in my remit? You can imagine my response. Bloody hell. Anyway, uh, I told him to tell the journalist that uh, he was in a hotel and he could ask them. And it was not included in the. In, in yeah, the but trip. I did. I did actually say to the winemaker, "Would you actually know where to go?" He said, "No." I said, "Tell him that." Well, I mean, I was on a press trip once for, in, in Eastern Europe where somebody actually found a prostitute in his room that had been laid on for him. Not oh me. I my goodness! He opened the door and there was a person in his room. He thought, "What's this person doing here?" Oh my god! We had that. Those are the days, eh? God. Yeah, you? years ago we had that in Cuba when. Um, yeah, there was a prostitute in the room because it wasn't, it was booked in Mr. rather than Mrs. Yeah. 
I mean, you must have seen a, a fair bit of bad behaviour on press trips. What's the worst thing journalists do? Is it whether the ones you've actually been on? I mean, is it just drunkenness or, you know, hesitate to use the fornication word? Was there a bit yeah, of that going yeah, on as well? Yeah, yeah. No, Rupert had, had a bit of that in condom, which is, of course, the place to have it. Was it was in condom. Uh, yeah. The town sheathed in mystery, as Michael Cox used to say. <laughs> <laughs> he was on an Armagnac trip. Um, I actually, it wasn't me. Uh, one of the team was on a we, we sorted we did a Bordeaux virgins trip and we had two journalists who didn't behave virginally which was quite funny but it, it's usually it's usually just having too much drink and telling you things that they probably wish they hadn't told you I think you know a lot of people press trips are like holidays for them mm. and they get away from children they get away from hard work and things and, and suddenly they and they're with people who aren't really their friends, so they end up telling you all sorts of things. Um, yeah, breakups and things. Um, yeah, I've had to hold a lot of hands. You've got to be a confidant in a way, yeah? yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. I, I, now, I don't know if you've ever read Towards the End of the Morning, which is a fantastic um, no. Michael Frayne novel. You should read it because there's a description in there of a, of a press trip uh, with something called Magic Carpet Tours, and it's this oh, press brilliant. trip that goes spectacularly wrong. I just wonder, what's the worst press trip you've ever organised? Well, the worst trip was... When you asked me this question initially, I thought about it because probably the worst and the most memorable is actually almost the best. Mm. Um, day trip to Bulgaria on a Tupolov with Domain Boyar. <laughs> yeah, it's a Russian play. <laughs> and um, we filled it with um, Don Perignon and sushi and uh, took journalists to the opening of a new um, vineyard. A um, couple of journalists to begin with thought if they were going on a private plane, they wouldn't need passports. So it was a bit of a problem there. But um, once Rupert took, took the trip, once he got there, there was, there was a, the Archbishop blessed the vineyard. And it was all sort of great mumbo jumbo. But then on the way back, they were dropping off some journalists in Belgium. But <laughs> they, it was too late at night for them to be allowed to buy fuel for some reason. So they all had to spend the night in um, Belgium. So a day trip to Bulgaria ended up being a two-day trip in Bulgaria and <laughs> Belgium. And and it was they were all given fob keys, but they were all given fob keys to rooms which you had mostly um Japanese people, couples in them. <laughs> <We're already laughs> surprised, in yes. But Rupert had to sort of um look after these because we have one journalist who was uh who didn't have her eye drops, another journalist whose cats weren't going to be fed. And then the caterer was trying, had to bury his, her father the next day. So Rupert had great fun having to try and reorganise everything. Um, but, yeah, but, but I mean, even somebody who didn't go on that trip wrote an article as though he'd gone on it, which was hilarious. because he so It's one of the most famous <laughs> wine press trips ever. <laughs> the day yeah. trip to Bulgaria via Brussels on the way yeah, back. Exactly. exactly. And, then, and I, I don't know if you ever heard about the, the press trip that I took to Louis Jada on a private plane. I think the thing is, if we ever invite you on a private plane, just say no. <laughs> Things tend to go wrong. And then one of the engines went. In the air. One of the engines went in the air and we ended up landing in a military airfield in France that no one's really allowed to know about. And it's before you all had GPS, so we didn't know where we were. Anyway, we arrived and um, landed. 
And then the uh, fire engines came along and collected us, took us for lunch, um, except for the pilot. And uh, we all thought this is strange. And they said, would you like Coke? Would you like Coke? And we went, yeah, Coca-Cola would be nice. So we went to this machine and the Coca-Cola machine was full of red wine. (laughs) (laughs) See, sometimes the French get things right, don't they? (laughs) Um, Oh, God, that was Tell me something else. I mean, I I wonder, how how did you cope with lockdown? It was difficult for you guys because, um, you know, you couldn't do events, basically. Did you close the office? No, (laughs) didn't didn't close at all. Didn't close Mm. at all, just adapted. Um, I, well, our biggest client is wonderful Hatch Mansfield, and we chatted to them, and I said, look, all I can tell you is that my journalists will want to drink, (laughs) and... um, They'll still be thirsty, so let's get some bottles to them. Hopefully, they'll all have columns. Who knows? You just didn't know what was happening. First thing I did, though, was ring up um, our landlord and ask for a rent reduction. <laughs> and um, then after that, we just became a little hub for sending out samples. Mm. So um, a lot of my team work from home anyway, so it wasn't huge changes. Mm. Um it was mostly me and Hannah in different rooms. Mm. Um, and we just sent bottles out to people and had long conversations with them. So we found out an awful lot about journalists, you know, names of their children, where they lived, how rural they were, blah, blah, blah. And then um, when we were allowed to socialise outside, we thought, come on, let's have a tasting in the car park. So we ended up doing three tastings in the car park. But, I mean, the amount of rules, the, mm. the, the real problem that we had was that we didn't have, um, we don't have one of those loos where it says engage, you know, that, it, that it's busy. So mm. we had to do a, do a sign for that because there were so many rules. You weren't allowed to have more than six people. So, um, if necessary, one of us would stand in the outside. Not blocking the seventh or, person yeah. coming in or something. <laughs> yeah. It was, there were so many blooming rules. Um, but, the first one we did was quite strange because everyone was sort of not not wanting to be too close to each other and you know there was tape everywhere saying so, you know, beware sort of thing. <laughs> um, but I, th- I think it, it was the first trade tasting. Yeah, I think it, I think um, it was, wasn't it? Yeah. Tell, so tell we me had a people bit on about, their bikes and things. Oh, you're doing all sorts of stuff. But tell me about the PR landscape, if we can call it that. Um, you know, you've been doing this, what, 25, more, probably 30 years, don't want to remind you. But yeah. how much has it changed since you, you started? And do you have to work harder these days and charge less to get the same work? Um, it, it's, it has changed enormously because you've got many more players, which is the exciting thing. In it. When I first started, we were very much going to the same press most of the time. A lot of our clients only wanted to go to the um, the wine press. Um, now, obviously, we're going much more to consumer press, and there's a lot of content creators, influencers, whatever you want to call them. So the landscape has changed a lot. Um, people had more money back then. So when you talk about press trips, it tends to be – the generics doing the press trips now. There always used to be a lot of brand trips, but it's difficult to say to a brand unless they're launching, unless it's a completely new brand or they're launching something completely di- different or they've bought a castle on a, an island in the middle of nowhere or something. It, it's difficult to say that it, they're going to get the money's worth 
by paying for me and journalists mm. to do that. So um, I do much, much more uh, very targeted mm. PR, really. So, but, but I like the fact that there's so many more people to play with. So, I mean, this pool is, as you said, it's bigger because it's journalists, it's communicators, it's bloggers, it's influencers, yeah. if we can yeah. call them that. I mean, do you think that's a good thing overall? It sounds like you do. I do, because I think there's something for everyone. I mean, mm. every brand that we look at, we look at the target audience. So, mm. uh, in the way that every press release we write is different, every we have a completely different target market for... Um, everything we're launching. So we're, we're, uh, we're working with an astrology expert. Well, I would never come to you and say, do you want your birth chart done? Because I just know it isn't very oh, you. Be quite good fun, actually. I I started out as a print journalist and now I suppose I'm a communicator and you know I'm doing this for a start, really. But And, and I agree with you. I think it's a good thing. I, I don't think it's bad that there are more people talking about it. And, you know, they might have different levels of expertise or different interests, but, you know, they've got skills that I haven't got, for example, and, and I'm sure vice versa. I think that's fine. I think it's wonderful. And the and the other thing is that they're all good friends, um, especially after the little wine bitch um, sort of scenario. So they've yeah, all become nasty, really good. Yeah, that was nasty. Somebody wrote a series of sort of blogs that were very bitchy. That was the name of the, that was the, name of the game, really, about yeah. people, particularly younger influencers and female yeah. ones, really. Yeah. Um, oh, and male. Yeah. I'm afraid I read, read some of the things. Not very I nice think much. I was in it as well. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the what was nice is that the younger influencers, communicators, whatever you want to call them, um, all sort of held hands in a way, and it became a bit of a family. So that's mm. I, I like that. Mm. D- d- tell me about what makes a good PR campaign, and we've discussed a bit of that. But I mean, and how does it differ from from advertising? Advertising is completely paid for. Mm. So um, advertising is brilliant if you want to have you know these ten words only. Um, but PR is just can be a lot more creative in a way in that uh, come up with the launch or mm. we still do strap lines and things. So there's a lot that works with advertising. Mm. Um, but I think we have much more scope. <laughs> and more fun probably. In yeah. A way. Yeah. yeah. I mean, are there other campaigns that you admire? I mean, particularly in, in the wine world or the drink world or food world that have been run by other companies? I mean, do you look at yeah. them and do you learn from them? Oh, absolutely. I think um, a very simple campaign, which is run and run, is um, uh, 30 Days of Riesling, mm. um, which Phipps do. And I, I think they must have done it for about 15 years or something. And it, it, it just works. Mm. Um, solid, good, clever, easy campaign. Um, the trip that I think was just brilliant was the one that you went to for uh, Australia, the trip of a lifetime with the Hazel Morrison. The of a lifetime. Wine flight, think, flight of a lifetime. I mean, although hilariously, I think they did more than one. <laughs> well, different lifetimes, I suppose. But they were different lifetimes for different people. But you were in charge of a bus, weren't you? Yes, which is hilarious, really. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember, remember actually getting very drunk on the first day in Adelaide when we landed and falling asleep on the bus when I was supposed <laughs> to stand up and say something about going to the McGill Estate you know, near, near Adelaide. Anyway, yeah, that was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I mean that was brilliant. That was yeah, the 
press trip of all press trips, wasn't it? Yeah, it really? was a pretty pretty smart press trip. Just one thing before we go to the last question. I just wonder how how if you've got a client that you've had for a long time, like Hatch Mansfield, you know, fantastic agency house and importer. How do you keep things fresh with them and, and in the news? Going to fresh people, um, doing good sponsorships. Um, Tassinger, bless them, have just decided to sponsor Chili Cooper's Tackle. A new book Is coming that the name out. Of the book? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and off, you can imagine. Off, off. Pun, pun. <laughs> <laughs> and you can imagine um, what the front cover is. There's some white boxer shorts. So, and I just invited a few people saying, Would you like to come to this with a plus one? No need to dress as the cover. And you can imagine quite, quite a hot ticket, really. Because, you know, when you, everybody's tasted Tasha, obviously, when the new, the new, vintages come out we can do something but otherwise you know they do clever sponsorships and then i could get the right people around to it and, and tackle is a book is it just so we've so oh, we yes jilly <laughs> cooper's new book coming out next week buy it folks it's a novel <laughs> <laughs> final question is, is you know you've got this pretty rich life outside wine i know you're a passionate swimmer but what else do you do to take your mind off work and, and i know you were here you are working at a weekend but normally you don't work at weekends i hope i do sometimes just come and do a little bit of admin but no i'm off to play paddle tennis in a, in a minute which um my husband Rob and I just love it's fun and it's I think the fastest growing sport so you know, I'm there with it um <laughs> love the river we live on the river and I do my 12,000 steps every day and I tend to go farther river on the way to work and farther river on way, the way back as well um Pilates Zumba belly dancing what did you know <laughs> that <laughs> well it's part of the zumba so okay. <laughs> and i mean i i think people can hear that you're a fun person but is it still as much fun now as it was when you started all these years ago yes yeah because it, it's different every day is different and hmm. um, which is lucky and I think that you, I mean, p- partly because you're having fun, um, but it's obvious that you're having fun, you know, and I think that's a good thing. And that comes across really in everything you do. It's not just machine PR. It's it's something where you're thinking, how can I make this entertaining? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, if I'm doing crisis PR, it's it's not entertaining, but, you know, it, it's not, not every minute is fun. But um, mm. bizarrely, I really enjoy writing things like monthly reports. Mm. It's a... Uh, because I think you, you, you can relax. And, and it's nice to think that if you hadn't met Stephen Spurrier in his leather pants, right, and also <laughs> if you hadn't been to the horse races and the guy from H. Sigil had seen you and changed his mind about giving you a job, you could be doing something completely different. I know, I know. Exactly. Well, I'm, for one, very glad <laughs> that you ended up doing what you do. R&R teamwork. Rosamund Barton, lovely to talk to you, and thanks for being on the show. Thanks so much, Tim. Have a good day. Bye. Well, I knew that was going to be a lot of fun, and I kind of wish I'd been on that day trip to Bulgaria. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is Ginny Poval from Botanica Wines in South Africa. Join me then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles, and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Tim Atkin, and on Instagram, at Tim MW. See you next week. <laughs>